0: of jhana ten weeks ago with a a broad uh, introduction of jhana meditation and its purpose. Uh, And then we spent nine classes, nine weeks on the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha first teaches us the initial applications of these four foundations of mindfulness, meaning the four foundations of mindfulness are the Buddha's instructions for developing jhana meditation. Uh, And so we learn to first be mindful of the breath in our body like we just did now, to be mindful that feelings and thoughts arise and pass away and to not be distracted by those, and also to be mindful of the present quality of our mind without the need for this present quality of mind to be any different than it is. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And you'll hear me reference that uh, often by saying that we learn to be at peace with less than peaceful mind states. And for many, until we really understand that, that can sound like a a paradox or a contradiction to what we're teaching here. Um, But the Buddha doesn't teach escape from humanity. He teaches us to be deeply immersed in our lives, in in our human life, moment by moment, as our life unfolds. The reason why human beings cannot do that and and, and literally waste their entire lives is because we're distracted to the past or to the future, but anything to keep us out of the present moment. And the reason why we do that is because of a preoccupation with dukkha or with stress and suffering. The first noble truth could have been nearly as accurately described as saying, there is distraction, as the Buddha's words is there is dukkha, there is stress and suffering as a consequence of having a human life. And the qualification for that is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. It is because of the preoccupation with stress and suffering, with dukkha, with constant eye-making, that we are distracted away from our own humanity. And th- that's a, a very broad statement too, I understand. And your continued Dhamma practice will bring that to light. You'll need to see that for yourself. Um, and then after the Buddha teaches us how to meditate, he teaches us how to apply that ever-deepening level of concentration to something called refined mindfulness. And I, I add refined to that. And the reason why I do is that um, mindfulness is a is new um, pop modern religion. Uh, everybody wants to be mindful. But the practice of modern mindfulness is really a practice of ongoing mindlessness, meaning it's grasping after any object that arises in our mind and calling that mindfulness. That's not mindfulness according to what the Buddha teaches. The Buddha teaches a very specific application of mindfulness, and that is to integrate and be mindful of the eight factors of the Eightfold Path. Anything outside of that is not refined mindfulness, and it's not a type of mindfulness that we are concerned with as Dhamma practitioners. So just to shorten that a little bit, we practice jhana meditation to deepen concentration to support refined mindfulness, a very specific application of mindfulness. Here, this is actually called the jhana sutta. And the Buddha is using this sutta not to teach us how to do jhana. He's already done that. He's teaching us a very, an ever-deepening application of concentration. And notice where the Buddha starts this very important sutta out. He starts by telling us that we first apply that concentration to recognize and abandon any magical thinking, any mystical thinking. And that means any thinking that would generate an experience that is non-human, meaning it's outside of this body, outside of the the possibility of of a human life. And again, he brings this, this up immediately in this sutta, but this is a common theme. And the words used are, or things like the uh, the uh, the uh, infinitude of consciousness, or the dimension of neither perception nor non perception, but all of those um, uh, conceptual fabrications were common during the Buddhist time, but they're just as common today as goals of meditation or goals of the Buddhist teaching. Uh, almost every um, Buddhist lineage I've come across, even the Theravadins, because they're uh, the Theravadans are rooted so heavily in the Abhidhamma, uh, it, the, the, the culmination is always something that is extra-human, outside of the human realm of possibility. And so it's not something that the Buddha taught. Everything the Buddha taught was to be directly experienced as a human being, nothing else. And so again, the Buddha starts out by saying, if you're, if you're inclined towards any type of magical thinking, immediately let that go. The Buddha's words from the Jhana Sutta. I tell you, friends, that the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, uh, the three defilements are the, the the key theme to recognize and abandon as the result of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So let me start over again. Every human being gets caught up in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking because we don't understand who we are in relation to the world. Uh, again, the, the, the purpose of the Four Noble Truths. The way that Buddha would characterize that the internal mechanism to constantly grasp after something that we're not, especially magical or mystical establishments, is this line that's repeated over and over and over again throughout the Dhamma. Because of a misunderstanding of self, meaning we don't understand who we are, we become anything other than self, anything other than an authentic human being. Notice that Buddha never ever says the self is nothing or the self is empty. In fact, a a a constant and important theme is to recognize that yes, you are a self, but as we understand it as an impersonal, dispassionate self, that is merely a reference point to what's occurring with our own life. And again, that's a hard thing to understand until you get there. But it's it's it's, it's the it's the sign point, the signpost. This is where we're going. This is what we're trying to develop an understanding of what it means to be a human being moment by moment as my life occurs without the need for it to be any different and that's so, that's reflected so well in this jhana sutta so let me just start over again with that introduction i tell you friends that the ending of the defilements of greed aversion and deluded thinking depends on fully developing the four levels of jhana the four the, the meditative levels of jhana and overcoming the desire For the establishment in the dimension of the infinitude of space or the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness or the dimension of nothingness or the dimension of perception or non-perception. Again, those are, just to use a phrase, are highfalutin words that simply mean any mystical establishment, any non-physical establishment you might have been taught is useful or you might be naturally grasping after. Let it go. That's the beginning of Dhamma practice, by the way. It's not some, some... final culmination, although uh, teaching from Saraputta, he describes it in that way. We're going we're gonna to get into the Saraputta Sutta in about three or four weeks. Um, just important to remember that anything that I hope to establish in jhana and the refined mindfulness that integrates the Eightfold Path is so I can have a human life and not be distracted away from that human life by any ideology, and for most of us in, in modern Buddhism, that includes and most especially is any ideology that grew out of a fabricated Buddhist dharma that doesn't relate to what the Buddha taught. And again, I'm not putting any of that down. The Buddha taught something quite different than almost anything else that was that is presented today and during his lifetime. The Buddha continues. Friends, the ending of the defilements depends on the first jhana. And now as I read through these jhanas, recognize that these are, um, they're merely ever-deepening levels of meditative absorption that are not goals of meditation. In other words, we're not striving for these deep deepening levels. They're a natural consequence of ever-deepening concentration. And so the Buddha's teaching us not to instill grasping after. He's teaching us to simply recognize these as they occur. And that's why I'm teaching it to you. Um, for each and every one of you that has engaged in jhana meditation, you will, have, you will be able to recognize at least the first three but I will tell you that you you are experiencing all four. Usually, the the last, the fourth, and maybe the third and the fourth in the beginning are so fleeting that you might not notice it. But it's important that you do, and that's again, that's the main reason for teaching this sutta. Again, I got to go back, friends. The ending of the defilements depends on the first jhana, which is secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities. Now one enters and remains in the first yana. So notice what we do when we first start jhana meditation. We find a quiet, secluded space. We sit, however we're sitting, whether it's on a floor or in a chair. We close our eyes and we take a breath. We're mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath. And by the second breath, we are quite secluded from sensuality by being mindful of the breath. For most of us, a thought or a feeling or a thought attached to a feeling will intervene and we have to do it again. That repetition is jhana meditation. In other words, jhana meditation is not just a decision I'm going to be mindful of my breath and nothing else arises for X number of minutes. Nobody can do that. Jhana meditation is a, is a practice of deepening concentration which simply means when we're meditating in jhana meditation and we find that we're caught up distracted by a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling meaning an emotion we simply recognize it and come back to the sensation of breathing there's no judgment there's no analysis there's no looking for blame or any of that recognize my distraction come back to the sensation of breathing and this is the most powerful tool ever given for deepening concentration one enters or remains in the first jhana so everybody has experienced that you simply quiet your breath and you're mindful of your breath You've now established the beginning of the first jhana, the Buddha's words. This first jhana is experienced as rapture, born of that very seclusion. So, um, rapture is a, a rather archaic word that for most people has a Christian connotation of the second coming or the apocalypse. Uh, rapture is a is a word, though, that simply means joyful engagement with whatever the subject is. And so, and as I restored the suttas, I... I I kind of went back and forth with including this word because of the Christian connotations, but it really is the perfect word once we understand it. So if we don't if we're not experiencing joyful engagement with our Dhamma practice, we need to start there. We need to look at that. Why is that? Am I taking to to meditation practice kind of in a grudging way, like i'm I have to do it or that crazy old bald guy on Thursday afternoon makes me do it. We, we engage with jhana meditation because we've taken true refuge. That means we've taken refuge in the human Buddha, his Dhamma, and a well-focused sangha. The reason why that leads to joyful engagement is because now we understand we're doing something that's actually going to develop what I want, a calm and peaceful mind. So if you're not joyfully engaged in this moment, it's okay to, to um, uh, conjure it up, to, to kind of manufacture or just feel that joy in this moment as I'm entering my meditation practice. Another simpler way of saying it, you should feel good about what we're doing because it leads to awakening, it leads to full human maturity, it leads to a, a unwavering, calm and peaceful mind. The first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. It is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Again, these are words that you might think are too difficult to understand because you've hardly heard them before, excuse me. But directed thought and evaluation is simply that. It means in meditation, I find that I'm caught up in my thoughts or a feeling. I direct my thoughts back to my breath. That's a directed thought. And you'll notice how that falls away. But in the first level of jhana, it is entirely appropriate to be directing my thoughts away from feelings and thoughts and towards my breath. And then an evaluation is just that we'd let go of any value judgment we're placing on this experience. Meaning, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Am I having the benefit of it? Am I finding some great insight? If you're looking for insight, stop, because that's not jhana meditation. Any evaluation at this point is recognized, but it, eventually it is let go of. So in the first jhana, it's okay to be, to be caught up in the directed thought aspect and even the, the valuing. But the valuing or the evaluating is, am I doing this first jhana correctly? And it's the most simplest thing any human being can do, isn't it? To sit quietly, close your eyes, and be mindful of your breath. Anybody can do it. The Buddha continues. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, depends on the second jhana, which is the stilling of directed thought and evaluation. And every one of you has experienced this in meditation. You've taken a breath, you started quieting your mind, and a thought or a feeling distracts you again. And you do that over and over again for maybe 30 seconds, maybe 10 minutes. But eventually you'll come to that spot where you realize you're not directing your thought and you're not judging anything. You're just one with your breath. And and that might only last for for a split second. That doesn't matter. The time of experience is not important Recognizing the experience, recognizing the ever-deepening levels of meditative absorption, is the point, and it's the whole point of this sutta, and why the Buddha taught the importance of recognizing your ever-deepening concentration by recognizing these four different levels. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure, now born of concentration. So initially, that rapture and that 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 rapture was born of the simple act of Connecting with our breath, that act of seclusion. Now it's going, we're taking that rapture, that joyful engagement, a little bit deeper. We're recognizing the deepening levels of concentration. How do we know that? Where are we applying this rapture? Because we just recognize the second level of jhana. You just recognize that. You know that your the practice is bearing fruit. This is so important for individual practitioners. It's not so important for your teacher or for the Buddha or anyone else. Because as we recognize that our practice is bearing fruit, then our practice becomes self-encouraging. And that joyful engagement, that that deep rapture, will only increase. Free of directed thought and evaluation, the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. And again, the Buddha is not putting a time frame on it, but we've all experienced this in our meditation. And if you haven't, please let me know. We'll make it part of our discussion in a moment, in a few moments. The Buddha continues, Furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends now on a third jhana, which is the fading of rapture. That doesn't mean that, we're, that the joyful engagement or rapture is, is not a useful quality. It's simply no longer necessary at this point, and it will simply fall away. That meditator remains equanimous, mindful, alert, and sensitive to pleasure. We're not grasping after pleasure anymore. We're sensitive to it meaning we'll recognize it as it occurs without any grasping or clinging. The fading of rapture, that joyful engagement is no longer there. I remain equanimous. Equanimous simply means for this moment, and maybe for a moment after moment after moment, my mind is balanced. It's equanimous. At the same time, I'm mindful and alert and sensitive to the pleasure. To pleasure of what? To the pleasure of deepening concentration. This is pleasurable, and it should be pleasurable kind of the whole point with the fading of rapture this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body and I would bet every one of you has had that experience of the third jhana a pleasant abiding that's permeating your your entire mind and body and again no time frame if it was just for a moment or two it's important to recognize yes that's the third jhana another important aspect of these deepening levels of meditative absorption excuse me is that off our cushion we'll recognize these ever deepening levels of jhana in, um, uh, in, in spontaneous moments of mindfulness we'll recognize that in this moment for up until that, that moment no reasonable explanation would give me for I am peaceful and calm in my body this pleasant abiding is now permeating every part of my mind and body that's an experience of taking that third jhana off our cushion and into our moment by moment life And it's just as important to recognize it off our cushion as it is on our cushion. Another way to say that, or probably the most direct way to say it, is until we recognize it on our cushion, we'll never be able to recognize it off our cushion, or at least it won't have any integrative value off our cushion. The Buddha continues. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends on the fourth shana, which is the abandoning of evaluation, the lack of any judgment, the lack of putting any value judgment good, bad, or indifferent, meaning on board, in this moment. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends on the fourth jhana, which is abandoning of of evaluation. And so in our meditation practice, it's important to not be evaluating whatever's occurring, just resting in our breath. And again, even if it's just for a moment that we're able to do that, we have established the fourth jhana, and it will only build. And again, then off our cushion, we can we can recognize when we're established in that fourth jhana. That's also what I say uh, in meditation, to learn to be at peace with less than peaceful mind states. I won't get too deep into that right now. The Buddha continues, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. Again, a refined mindful, meaning it, it now has the ability to hold in mind the entirety of the Eightfold Path as my framework and guidance for this moment. And that, that might seem like a broad leap to some of you right now, but that's where we're going. The Buddha continues being pure in that moment, in this fourth level of jhana. And remember, this isn't stagnant. Even the fourth fourth level of jhana is a dynamic mental quality. That fourth level, which is equanomy, which is pure equanomy and mindful. Being pure in that moment neither pleasure nor pain is seen. And that's also another reference to the lack of evaluation, to the lack of value judgment. Because we'll always, if we're caught in chasing pleasure and avoiding anything is, that's disappointing, we'll always be va- value, evaluating this moment or evaluating this moment, placing a value judgment. And it is that value judgment that we're placing on our lives as our lives unfold that distract us from the moment, isn't it? Because it's always based in eye-making, always based in acquisition. And an acquisition is also avoiding something. I'm hoping to acquire a lack of whatever is distressing me. It's it's just two sides of the same coin of, of grasping after something. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They sit, the wise meditator, they sit in mind and body, sorry, they sit permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. And again, just ask yourselves, Have you experienced that in jhana meditation? And I think you would all say yes. Uh, If you haven't, I I would bet that you just haven't noticed it yet, so be mindful of it. But again, that's what the sutta is about. So we're able to, to judge clearly, evaluate clearly our levels of deepening concentration. The fourth jhana, which is a pleasant abiding. This follower of the noble eightfold path understands that any phenomena connected to the five clinging aggregates of form, feeling, perceptions fabrications in consciousness, is impermanent, stressful, a disease, painful, an affliction, and as such, anatta. it is not self. That's the most important teaching on the the not self characteristic. If it's causing distress, it is not me, it is not mine. It is something that I have attached myself to because of ignorance of four noble truth, because of the way I fabricated myself in the world in relation to my views. Because of a misunderstanding of self, we become anything other than self. In this moment, if I'm sitting here in front of you and my underlying motivation is to be known as the world's greatest motivation meditation teacher, I've lost my mind. Because I'm now becoming anything other than self. Because that self knows it, and I'm just kidding. That self is simply a meditation teacher in this moment. And a half hour from now, I'll be a dog walker when I'm taking Bodhi out. But the fabrication is not just these magical and mystical future establishments. It's any fabrication in my mind that I need to be something other than what I am. And so I happen to be right now a meditation teacher and I'm a writer and all that. If I'm caught up in my mind about being the best, or it might be, I'm such a lousy writer, I shouldn't write another word. It's still a fabrication, isn't it? or anything else that we might be if i if i happen to be a baker i got to be the best baker and i'm co- constantly preoccupied with that or that i might lose everything because i'm such a lousy baker instead of just being a baker instead of just being a meditator instead of just being an entrepreneur instead of just being whatever we are which is the reward of having a human life and so as human beings we aren't just a meditation teacher or a dog walker or a writer or an entrepreneur or a guest lecturer, we, we, we are everything. Um, I, there's a, a, a business person that I'm coaching, uh, a rather high level in business, and I'm, I'm. it's kind of a hybrid between this practice and, and business counseling. Um, and I told that person when we first began that I am not your business coach. What I am hoping to do with this person is to make you see that your personal life and your business life is one life. And we need to see that too as dharma practitioners. We don't have a life as a meditator and then as maybe even uh, this type of dharma practice and that type of dharma practice and we're, we're, whatever else we're doing with our lives. Maybe we're involved in sports or shopping or it could be anything. But we are all of those things. We're not just a meditator. We're not just a dharma practitioner. We are human beings. And we're engaging in this practice of jhana so that we can bring this mindfulness to our entire humanity. When we start getting into fabrications, there's absolutely no possibility to bring that into any part of our life. It might affect it, but we can never be mindful of it in this present moment. I'm going to go back and read that again. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path understands that any phenomena connected to the five clinging aggregates is impermanent, stressful, a disease, painful, and affliction, and as such, it's not self. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path disregards those phenomena and inclines their mind to the cessation of ignorance. Nothing remains to provoke the birth of suffering. That's another, the, the Buddha's teaching on birth and rebirth is right there, and we'll get into that in a later class. The Buddha never taught to manipulate your life now for a favorable rebirth. Never taught anything like that. Um, in, re, in, in regard to phenomena, we disregard it, our clinging to any phenomena. Well, what is it specifically? It is any phenomena. Anything that arises that, that gets our attention in a negative way or a grasping after way or in an ambivalent way, just saying, oh, I don't even like this. We've attached ourselves to it. Recognize in that moment what you've done and simply take a breath. And in in so doing, when you're recognizing clinging to phenomena arising and passing away, and you're mindful of your breath, you've interrupted that conditioned thinking that would maintain that. And I hope that's clear. And if it's not, please uh, question me on it. But in that moment, a well-concentrated mind, is able to interrupt the ongoing process of ignorance, of one ignorant thought following another ignorant thought, creating another ignorant human experience, meaning an experience rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. The Buddha continues, This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, from fully developing the four levels of jhana, knows an exquisite peace. That's also a reference to an awakened quality of mind. But jhana meditation is both um, the practical experience of developing awakening, or the, the qualities of concentration necessary for awakening, and a metaphor for that awakened experience. In other words, every time we experience that fourth level of jhana, we are having a direct experience of being an awakened human being Really what's left at that point is taking it off of our cushion and integrating it into our moment-by-moment life. Now, fabrications have ended grasping too. We're no longer grasping after any self-establishment. This passion and unbinding are now established in that fourth level of jhana. Unbinding from what? Unbinding from all views that are rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. This is an awakened quality of mind. For most of us, it won't last, but that's what ongoing practice is about. What is important is that we recognize that we've established that, even if it's just momentarily. And the Buddha describes, use a really beautiful metaphor to describe this. Excuse me. It is as if an archer or their apprentice were to practice on a particular target. With continued practice, they would be able to shoot quickly for long distances piercing many targets. In the same manner, they reach the the cessation of the defilements. If not then, through continued joyful right effort and the cessation of the five lower fetters. I'm going to describe what those are. But what the Buddha is saying is basically a well-focused, well-informed Dhamma practice is what we should be developing and maintaining. That's the, the, the straight shooter, the arrow. Through the right effort and the cessation of the five lower fetters—that self-identification or self-referential views, grasping after rituals and practices—that was a shock to me when I first read it. And maybe the first hundred times I read it, because all of my almost my entire Buddhist practice up until then was caught up in rituals and and, and practices. And uh, one practice I started for about eight minutes was that uh, in a the, um, uh, Tibetan lineage that I took vows in was and you're taught that. To begin that practice, you must do 108,000 full prostrations, all the way down and back up. Uh, and once you do 108,000, then your really initiation into that particular lineage could begin. And uh, I started that. I'd lasted about eight minutes, and I realized that wasn't the practice for me. And I'm and and it. I was very fortunate to be able to see this in what the Buddha actually taught, because there was a. A minor level of clinging guilt that I didn't do something that I avowed to do, but I, I also uh, disavowed those vows at some point. Um, the next fetter is doubt and uncertainty. So this, this kind of flies in the face of one of the major um, modern Buddhist dharmas uh, that, that actually encourages doubt. We should dive into our doubt and experience our doubt and generate doubt. Well, the Buddha says that's just a hindrance to practice and if there's any doubt when you're developing his Dhamma, to recognize doubt and uncertainty and simply put it aside. It's also taught in the hindrances that we went through uh, during the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, sensual craving and deluded thinking. We let go of all those and we recognize they are released. We are unbound. The Buddha continues, I tell you friends that the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion and deluded thinking depends on fully developing all the four levels of jhana and overcoming the desire for the establishment in in these fabricated dimensions. I won't read every one of them. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, having abandoned self-identification with form, having abandoned aversion, having abandoned self-reference now here and now there. It's such an important line that we shouldn't overlook it. Because we scatter our mindfulness everywhere where we think we can establish ourselves. The Buddha is telling us, bring your mind back into your body. Stop scat- scattering yourself now here and now there. They enter remain in the perception of the infinitude of space. Wait a minute, isn't the Buddha telling us to go there? No. He's telling us that as a consequence of our practice, we might find ourselves there. What do we do if we find ourselves in a fabricated realm such as a, the perception of the infinitude of space? Even here. We understand that any phenomena connected to the five clinging aggregates is impermanent, stressful, a disease, painful, an affliction, and as such is not self. So again, a common during the Buddhist time, common during every, every uh, modern Buddhist practice I've come across is this establishment in non-physical realms or some kind of understanding based on that. The Buddha says over and over again, that's a disease, it's an affliction. It's an aspect of eye-making. Don't do it. They disregard these phenomena, the Buddha's words, they disregard these phenomena and incline their minds instead, I put that word in there, to the cessation of ignorance. Nothing remains to provoke the birth of further suffering. I'm going to read it again. They disregard these phenomena, meaning grasping after right rituals, practices, doubt and uncertainty, what I might be if I if I just pray to all the Buddhas long enough, or if I just gain enough merit. All of that is an affliction, it's a disease, because it's taking you out, taking us out of this present moment. And it is in this present moment that we can practice wise restraint and so awaken. There is no awakening, no understanding that can develop from the past, how could it, or in the future, how could it? Any understanding we gain of, of our own humanity must be, and can only be, right here and right now. This follower of the Noble Eightfold Path, from vo- fully developing the four levels of jhana, knows an exquisite peace. Fabrications ending, grasping two. This passion and unbinding are now established friends. The cessation of the defilements depends on recognizing and abandoning the five clinging aggregates. The five fetters, overcoming the desire for establishment in the dimension of infinitude of space or any other fabricated dimension, as the Buddha says there. Thus, this is a profound understanding, unsurpassed and overcoming the five clinging aggregates. I'm going to read that again, but again, the, the Buddha's uh, teaching and description of the five clinging aggregates is to provide the, the understanding that they are the vehicle of what we've created to experience stress and suffering rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. It's not something, that, it's not something that's a, a consequence of having a human life, it's a consequence of having a human life rooted in ignorance, that we form these five clinging aggregates, and it is those aggregates that suffer. And so when we can recognize and abandon the aggregates through jhana practice and the Eightfold Path, suffering has ended as well. Thus, this is a profound understanding, unsurpassed and overcoming the five. Sorry, I read that again. The five clinging aggregates. Those followers of the Noble Eightfold Path who have attained this understanding and emerge from dependence on ignorance, it's also a slight reference to dependent origination, dependence on ignorance, skillful meditators of all, will rightly explain this to others. So, For years and years and years, I asked myself, why wasn't so-and-so and and this person teaching me what I eventually found that the Buddha taught? And I realized why here. Those followers of the noble Eightfold Path who have attained this understanding and emerged from dependence on ignorance, skillful meditators, all skillful meaning they're practicing this practice, will rightly explain this to others. Nobody was able to do it before until until the Buddha did. And that's why we're having such a difficult time uh, maybe in other um, modern Buddhist practices and I'm not saying that nobody else can explain this I just didn't find one that could do it as the Buddha did. Um, you will know that you have fully developed the Dhamma. Eh, that's not the way you want to say it. You will know that you that you have a strong grasp, a strong understanding of the Dhamma when you can explain it easily. But that doesn't even mean that doesn't mean that right now you can't explain it. It, but it's best to explain it as the Buddha teaches it, which is, it's a practice of developing unwavering peace and calm. And if you want to take it a bit further, you can say, through ending ignorance of four noble truths. Most people, their eyes are going to start rolling around because they they won't understand that. But that's where uh, pasiko comes in. So, as people come to understand your level of understanding through your countenance, through the way you're carrying yourself people will naturally ask you, so what's up with you? Why, why are you like this? Uh, that business person I uh, mentioned a little earlier, she wanted coaching because uh, she sold me the goggles, by the way. And in that, in that deal, she kind of came out of the blue, says, why are you so calm? And I, you know, I explained to her, it's a lot of vodka. and said, Meditation. And it, it intrigued her by the way I was carrying myself. Um, and I don't mean to, to, to uh, uh, poo-poo that, that's important to me because then I know I'm being authentic. You know, I'm not, I'm not manipulating people in any way. They recognize it in me, so I owe it. I own it. And, and I would bet that each and every one of you, um, people that know you have said there's something different about you. You seem more calm and more at peace. That's why. And this is just what's happened. This is how the Buddha, uh, in the course of his first month of teaching, attracted over a thousand followers. I haven't done quite that yet. But it was because of the way he carried himself. Uh, he never went out and sold himself in any way. He, he didn't, you know, there was no billboards, but he didn't do anything uh, to promote himself save for his own awakening. And then he let people come and see for themselves. So that's, to, that's today's sutta. Thank you for listening. Um, let's start with, uh, who should we start with? Let's start with Jeff. Jeff, how are you? Well, thank you. Good. Can we get unmuted here? Thank you for the teaching.
1: Um, I'd like to exercise some restraint, remain in noble silence, if that's all right, John.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's always fine for anybody to do that. Um, But also, if you have any questions or I've left you a little confused, please ask it. That's always appropriate, too. Uh, Cliff, how are you? Good to see you. Let me put my goggles on. I haven't gotten a good look at you yet. Good
2: to see everybody. Uh, great teaching today thank you Uh, so wondering um we talked about uh the self that we're not and the self that we are Mm -hmm. and i was just wondering what is it this the self that we are
0: yeah the self that we are is it simply a human being who's a just a reference point to what's occurring there's no there's no self-evaluation in that human being it's very difficult to really understand that uh yeah, there you. Go. I thought I lost you for a second, uh, but when you when you understand the entirety of what the Buddha, you don't have to understand the entirety. But of course, the Buddha is teaching us to be a human being, and he's always also teaching us to be a human being who is no longer ignorant of four noble truths, which means we not we we don't create stress in our lives from taking things personal. So that self is just an impersonal reference point to life as life occurs. Is that is that a, a somewhat satisfying answer or, answer or not?
2: Yeah, actually, it is. You're saying it's just simply a reference point for location of of uh, localized consciousness.
0: In, than- in a human body, yeah, you know, that's an important component. It's that human body that locks us into a, a time frame that we can actually experience. If we again think the, it 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 gets into speculation, I probably shouldn't even say it, but a human being without a, a human body is not a human being might be something else you know there might be some quality to, of a mind disjointed from his body that we don't understand but that's not what the Buddha taught he taught us to yeah. be be a mind united in its body and so be a mind that is taking is, is a, a dispassionate engagement with life as life occurs and that doesn't mean it, I, I, I'm not saying this to anything that you've said Cliff it's, a, it's kind of a something that comes up does that sound like annihilation? no be, because we are mindfully and and I would even use the word emotionally present for what's occurring without the need for it to be any different. And again, there's no eye-making in that. Uh, it, and that. That's a little bit difficult to... It can't be explained until it's experienced, but it can be conceptually. It, 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 what occurs right now, it, mean, it has all the meaning in the world to me, and I really don't give a rat's behind about it, if you can understand that. It's important, it's significant, because I'm here for it. And so then each and every moment is significant. Because I'm here for it. It could be finishing the, the bottom of a, of a jar of peanut butter. It's significant because I'm present for it. And anything else. Uh, and, and for extreme moments as well. But the extreme moments don't cause me to lose my mind any more than getting to the bottom of an of a empty jar of peanut butter.
2: Uh, I, I've never met a human being without a body, so... I don't know about yeah. that.
0: But I yeah. Well, uh, No, I know. But a lot of people practice as if the point of, the, of any, even and not just talking about Buddhists, the practice of meditation is to escape your body. And of course, it's not. You know, we're here to unite our mind and our body. So. Great question, sure. Cliff. Thank you.
2: One, one other question. Please. You talk about, uh the Buddha question about experiencing um, anything outside the realm of a human being. How can we possibly experience anything outside the realm of the human being? We can. Even if it's we can. consciousness, uh, infinite space, it's it certainly, if it's experienced, if it's experienced, is within the realm of a human being. Because I don't stop becoming a human being if I experience consciousness of infinite space.
0: Well, so, I, again, okay, I, 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 that,
2: outside? I, I would, we we, anything outside
0: yeah, I don't, being? I don't, I won't get into the argument about that, but, uh, I, yeah. It, it i'm having trouble forming words because it doesn't make it cuz there's no such thing to me there's no such thing as the consciousness of infinite space i can't apply my i can't apply my consciousness to infinity i just don't have that capability i don't believe any other human being does so it's just a concept and it's a it, it's a popular concept during the buddha's time and today so what what good is is having, even if even if i could have huh, my, my, I was going to say, what good is it to have an awareness of something that you can't possibly experience? But it really, the best way to say it is, I don't care about having anything that's not a human experience. I won't grasp after it or, or be distracted towards it. Now, again, I'm not going to argue, with if you if you have had an experience of a consciousness of infinite space, then that's yeah. your human experience. Yeah,
2: okay. Well, I've had that experience, and it's valuable in that by have, uh, having that experience, then I could be conscious of, of what space is. Space is, is a created phenomenon. It's because g- g-
0: g- I, I don't mean to cut you off. You're, you're getting into, into into an area that to me is pure speculation, and I don't think it's part of the Dhamma.
2: Uh, I It's th- not speculation. John, John, it's not speculation. It, it, you can't just dismiss it that way. If I think of the space in this room, I'm conceptualizing the boundaries to that space. If I think of the space in the solar system, I'm conceptualizing the boundaries to that. If I'm thinking of infinite space, I'm not conceptualizing boundaries. Okay, so the, space is conceptualized
0: and constructed, not infinite space. It's a lack of boundary. But I don't want to argue with you, but it's just a simple experience. Maybe we're just speaking in different well, expressions. I, 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 right? yeah, I think so, but also we're talking about dharma practice. So for me to even contemplate this space in my room has nothing to do with my dharma practice and no so okay, let, me, let, me, let me finish Cliff so I don't and I mean I used to I used to sit I mean I spent half of my life sitting and having these dreams about all kinds of things uh, and I used to enhance them with drugs it made them even more expansive as I started developing the Dom, I simply didn't care to go there I, I don't the, this whether whether I'm sitting in a room that's I built this room I should know what it is it's 12 by 14 and that's my space, or to, I don't even—I don't need to think. And outside of this is infinite space, because it's not part of my Dhamma practice. I'm here, right, right here, and right now. I don't need to keep defining objects. In fact, because I don't need to define objects anymore, I'm able to simply be present. I don't lose my mind to these other things. So I think that's why should, the Buddha taught these things. You're
2: not practicing the higher jhanas. I that don't is, say you have to, and I'm saying that this That way, is.
0: That that, okay, that that is the highest jhana. The fourth level of meditation is the highest jhana.
2: There's ten jhanas,
0: John. Okay, we're, again, you're getting into a practice that the Buddha never taught. Well,
2: it's, it's, all right,
0: okay. I, again, I don't want to argue with it, Cliff, but that... There's no point
2: to argue with it. I mean, okay, if you say so.
0: Yeah, and, and again, if you... What you're saying is contradicting the Buddha's words in this sutta. And, and again, I I, I I struggled with this for quite a few years until I realized, yeah, I'm 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 insisting that I, my mind keep going to a place where the Buddha says, don't go there. You see it differently, and that's fine. But I don't I, I, I'm my mind is free because it's well restrained. I don't need to go into these things and, and try to apply myself in ways that, that simply don't matter. Whether I can understand, yeah, I. I it, it, it's, it's a concept that doesn't relate to the Dhamma. That's why I'm having a trouble describing it or, or even talking about it. So. I, and again, I know I've left you disappointed, but I, I can't answer it any no, differently I'm not than
2: disappointed. that. disappointed. It's just that uh, I'm reading different things in sutras than you are. That's, that's all Well, I mean, yeah,
0: I, 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 mean, I agree, I agree with that. The, the, I, I agree with all of that because I believed in all that stuff until I focused on just what the Buddha taught in a consistent way. So, and I know the, the, the Buddha taught more than, I mean, you can find, read the Abhidhamma. The Buddha didn't teach ten jhanas or four jhanas. He taught an infinite number of levels of meditative absorption that are just ridiculous. Uh, they ridiculous to me when compared to what the Buddha actually taught. So, what, what I found is a dhamma that I can actually apply to my human life and not be distracted out of my body by... Thoughts that don't relate to what's occurring right here and right now. If I was an astrophysicist, <coughs> it might be more appropriate for me, or it would be more appropriate for me to think about um, the the vastness of space. But since I'm not, and I don't, I don't really care about it. I don't think about it. You know, especially as a Dhamma teacher, it has no bearing on me. I was watching a. Um, something a space flight william shatner got shot up into space and that got me thinking about space again but in that moment i don't i don't spend a lot of my time speculating on things that have nothing to do with where i'm at right now so again i i I hope i hope you don't feel like i'm arguing with you. i don't think you're arguing with me but i think we're talking about two different dhammas thank you cliff tom how are you
3: Um, hi John I'm good um, good thank you um, hmm yeah I mean I I guess uh, I guess just to build on what 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 you've been discussing um, if I'm just to point to what I find that I get immense benefit from the Dharma because and the, the 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 Dharma, as we're studying it in these sutras, uh, because it is so practical and it it, re, it relates to my real life existence, um, you know. And, 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 and for me, that's just been enormously beneficial. Having having studied different different sort of uh, Buddhist practices, um, not not to the levels that other people have, admittedly, um, I just find the practicality of it so so um, so helpful and so transformative. Um, And, you know, just this idea of being um, being present for your life as life occurs. Um, So, um, yeah, I don't really have um, uh, anything, um, anything more to add um, other than I'm I'm still trying to get my head around the four levels. I, I get them where i sometimes struggle is the difference between them i think there's quite subtle differences between yeah. you know the third and the fourth or the second and the third stuff like that so um i'm still getting my head a little bit around that but individually i get each one yeah good. it's just more i'm a little bit confused as to is it is this you know the difference between the second and the third that kind of thing but but um uh, yeah it's um it's, it's good. And, also, and just, just, just one more thing, you know, I was, I was thinking when you were saying, well, we've all, we've all perhaps, or, or perhaps many of us in this call have experienced one of the four genres, um, or sorry, or more than one of the four genres, you know, I was, I was thinking about experiences I've had. And I remember, um, I used to be sort of terrified of, um, going to the dentist, and I used to create so much stress around the idea. I would be like, I used to hate yeah. it, you know. Yeah. Like, and I would build, would build it up. I'd be like, okay, next week I've got this appointment at the dentist, and I know how much it's gonna hurt. And then I, and, and then um you know, and then you're 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 sitting there and you're you're sort of clenched. You've got your fists clenched, and you're yeah. and you're waiting for someone to drill a hole in your teeth, and it's and it's obviously horrible. And and yet, to some extent. I remember uh, one time I went fairly recently to the dentist and I just tried to be sensitive to that experience without wanting it to be any different. And it was quite liberating in a way. I mean, it still wasn't the most pleasant. It wasn't like I suddenly loved going to the dentist, don't get me wrong. But it was was more bearable um, and it just made me realize how much I was... Creating that that stress in my mind yeah. um, through that experience, and on a, on a more simple level, even getting in a, a, a you know a cold shower or something like that, and that difference between simply being sensitive to the experience um, yep. uh, as opposed to fighting against it. So those are just little ways in which, when I'm off the cushion, I'm noticing little by little the Dharma sort of coming into my life, and and, and that, that increased level of concentration playing out um, every now and then in my life uh, which is which is encouraging which as
0: you say is self-encouraging yeah thank you Tom that is and that's that you know to some that might seem like not even worth the price of admission but that's being present for your life is its own reward and those little ways is when we where we really notice it and the the four levels of jhana um, they aren't strictly defined we we need to use words to say this is this and it's that um, but they're, they're, um, we, we flow from one to the other. And if you, I mean, Cliff, if you wanted to start picking them apart, you could, you could make 80 genres out of these four, but this is what we're there just to recognize and to, and to give credence to what we're doing that. Yes, we're actually deepening our concentration because I notice it. And I notice it in these very simple, not magical, mystical grasping after terms. It's just a natural consequence of every meditation practice, every meditation session. So and and you've had all for every one of us has. You just you just you'll notice it more now, just like you're noticing those little those little aspects of, of uh, refined mindfulness and wise restraint. So, thank you, Alex. Good to see you. Hi, John. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, really great teaching. I mean, there's a lot there. I'm feeling I'm feeling a bit
3: um, behind with my. Uh, study I think so I need to I think I'm I'm feeling on catch up a little bit so there was a lot there that I was just noting down stuff that I need to look into outside of class but um, yeah so I just felt like there was a lot of interesting stuff and, and I I enjoyed it it was very thought provoking yeah. and I enjoyed your discussion that you
2: just had I didn't see you guys as arguing it was um, interesting to to hear um, I, I often get dragged into more than you teach, John. I think I often, I'm always curious
3: because you are focusing so much on what this man talks. So you know, I, I'm that fascinates me. And why not? Why not go to the original source and really understand that? But I can't. There's always this part of me that I try to rein in because I'm always wondering.
0: Uh, about other teachings and, and other stuff, so I'm on that path too, um, and yeah, I've just got to see where that goes. Really, um, Yes. Yeah. And and like you say, I, I never pronounce it episaco. I think you know, come and see for yourself, right? Epico. E H I P A S S I K O. Okay.
3: <laughs> yeah, so so I, I guess it's just practice and see what works works for you, and you know, in this case
2: the Buddha claimed and proved that this works um I guess
3: my only question is about grasping so for me when I was listening to you
2: speak I was thinking about my experience of jhana and day-to-day life and I think I'm in a pretty constant state
3: of grasping i'm always going into that i want i want i want yeah. but i think what my question is how do i differentiate between what i'm grasping after in, in an unhealthy way and what i what i want and what's a, you know it, what what what's what is it when an awakened being wants something how do they know it's a
0: want and not a grasp it's a, it's a great question the, the buddha teaches us that we every human being needs four things food clothing shelter and medicine and I would posit that most most not every most human beings have those things without too much effort uh, that doesn't mean that we might not have all the food, all the clothing, all the medicine you know all the wealth that we want, but most of us have that and uh, as a consequence of dhamma practice, we should be moving towards and i 'm using that not in a in a in a biblical sense should be as a consequence of our dhamma practice we should be moving towards um a more simpler view of our life. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll have a smaller house or a smaller bank account. It simply means we won't need these things. Uh, we won't have as many wants as you just described, but as a human being, there are wants. We do want food. You know, again, the Buddha, remember the Buddhist teachings. And I'm not sure if I gave this yet to, to the class, the Buddha's. Yeah, I did. I, I taught that uh, both of those suits. Um, He, he, he left a life of luxury and entered a life of severe asceticism and found both of those extremes as uh, not, not, giving, not bringing him to his goal, as, as distractions. So what he learned and what I learned through reading that was that my own grasping after more wasn't serving me well, but there were times when I wanted to deprive myself. And that wasn't good either. So I can say that, you know, I need a certain amount of food, but let me be a little bit ascetic practice and instead of 1,500 calories, I'll just eat 500. And that'll somehow prove my spirituality or something. No, we need food, we need a little bit of clothing. Remember the, 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 the common cults of the Buddhist time that were, most of them were, were based on people walking around with no clothes on. That was a popular cult. So we, these were practical things. So we need food, clothing, shelter, and sometimes we need a little medicine. Those are fine. But if we need to, if we need to fill our, our whole house up with these things so we always have them or we have more than others, now we've lost our mind. So, again, coming back to this middle way of living in the world. Most of us, if we own a house, most of us have a mortgage. If not, we're renting. You've got to pay those things usually a month in advance. That's not, that's not a, a, a wrong aspect of Dhamma practice if I pay my bills. That's being a responsible human being. They, and the question arises because most of us, even if we're not in Buddhist practice, are probably caught up in New Agey notions today. And those always tend towards a, a, a subtle form of self-loathing rooted in asceticism, meaning self-denial. And that, the, there should be no denial in a human life. Just wise restraint is two different things. Meaning, in this moment, I don't need to be grasping after anything. And, and it's true in this moment You know, those of you that don't know uh, our American baseball, you wouldn't understand this, but there was a, a famous player named Lou Gehrig, and he was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and he gave this speech that he considers himself one of the luckiest men on the face of the earth right before he left the ball field for the last time. People think he's crazy. How could he feel lucky? Right now, almost blind, I can't walk, but I'm smiling. I have everything I've ever needed, and my life has never been better. Because I don't need it to be any better. That's the only reason. I, mean, I could I could easily sit there. I'd love to have my sight back and be able to, to play golf again and all those things. It'd be great. But I don't lose any sleep. I don't lose a thought over it. And that's remarkable to me. That's why I can teach with such enthusiasm. Because I know it works.
3: Do you have moments when you want to play golf? Yes. And and how do you differentiate? How do you know when that's a healthy want that you oh, can't have?
0: Because if I can't take a breath after it and let it go, I know it's not healthy. But... I'm able to do that. And it comes up, I I was watching a a golf tournament at a place I'd love to play. And I thought, yeah, it'd be nice. And I can, you know, I think Cliff, when anybody that's ever played, you remember some of your great shots. And I can think about, I can think think about a perfect drive that I hit 30 years ago. I can still feel it. I can see it just turning, just line landing right in the floor. Oh, it was perfect. I know, I know I'll never do it again and I'm not melancholy at all about it. I mean, and actually what I would say is if there's anything it's grasping after the past but I'm just amusing myself too much as an example I'm, I am so happy or so fortunate to have the life that I've had and I've had every tragedy that every other human being has had it's just a part of having a human life I'm fortunate because I don't have to reject any of it I, I you know just to get into it a little deeper on six occasions I came within a, a, a few minutes of, of drinking or drugging myself to death Six times that I know of. And I can still make that statement. It's an accurate, honest statement. Today I consider myself, a, there's always a revert, today I consider myself one of the luckiest man in the face of the earth. It's true. And I hope all you do, except Louise, I don't want you to feel like a lucky man. Uh, but, but again, I, I just think of, now that I'm, I'm, I'm pontificating, it, but think about that. Why shouldn't we feel very fortunate to have this life? If we don't, it's because we're judging it too harshly. That's self-loathing. That's why I use those harsh words. Why would I not be appreciative of the life that I've lived? I've put a hell of a lot of effort in this life. And I started feeling that, but just, you know, when I first sobered up and in the program, and I went into, went into AA, and in my area, after you sober for 90 days, you've got to get up in front of the room and tell your story. And I don't have too much trouble telling my story then, now, but then I did. But I remember saying... And that word just came out in the room looking at me where I was crazy. I said, you know, for the first time in my life, I can feel pain. And I feel so, and I was almost crying in front of this this lecture, in front of this group of 150 people. And I said, I feel so lucky to be able to feel pain. And it looked at me like I was crazy. But from the time I was 13 to I was 26 at the time, I didn't feel anything except drugs and alcohol going into my body. And now I was alive. And I was out of my mind. I mean, if you're in early early recovery, you're you're not thinking well. But that was a good thought, and that's carried me through. In this moment, I'm I am just I'm so fortunate to have to be able to have a discussion with Cliff like that, and we're both staying present. Neither one of us lost our minds over it. Ten years ago, I, I would well not ten years ago, but thirty years ago, I might have tried to kill him. You know, I'd want my hands around his neck because because he, he's not listening to me. How could you not listen to someone who knows everything? You know? But again, this is this is the common piece that the Dharma gave me, and uh, even Cliff won't get me to change my mind about it. So. Uh, thank you, thank you, uh, Matteo. How are you?
4: All good. Hi, everybody. Um, so, few few things uh, about the the jana jana levels. It's I think like. I experience pretty much all of them maybe in short maybe long but it's but then like uh, sometimes I ask myself it's what's the point so I mean like I really have to feel it all of them uh, because sometimes I think I can you know you can easily can grasp on that so the like a game it sounds yeah. like okay level one level, two, yep. level so but it, it sounds like a bit tricky, and uh, and I agree with Tom. Like they are so subtle, the that sometimes it's a bit uh, difficult to to get it. So most of the time, that's uh, work with myself. I just letting go. So if I experience, it's fine. If I am not, maybe the next day will be better or worse.
0: Yes, it, it's exactly like that, Matei. We don't gra- We just recognize them, and and I and I would bet you're going to recognize them more readily now. Uh, but again, if we, if, we're trying, if we see them as a goal, we're going to lose it. But if you find that you're setting the jhanas up to each level as a goal, just recognize it, take a breath, and that, that's fine. And eventually, and I would say rather quickly for all of us, it will, the, the levels of jhana will, will cease being a goal and simply be an experience, which is how they're taught. But they're taught for that, so we recognize them. Let go, of, yeah. let go of the evaluation when you can, but if you still find yourself evaluating your meditation, that's fine. Just recognize it. And again, that's how the Buddha taught this too, isn't it? Just in a dispassionate way, we flow from one level to the next, to the next, but recognize it. And that fourth level, um, and you'll, you'll hear it in other suttas, especially the Saraputta sutta, there are ever-deepening levels of jhana, but they're always past that, past the fabrications. Because those aren't any level; they seem like it, but they're not. You know, they're just they're just a distraction from uh, from where we are right here. So, thank you, Matteo. Louise, last but not least. Sorry to put you on the, on the spot last, but how are you? Hi okay, guys. So,
1: um, thank you very much. Um, my question was about grasping as well, and um. And there's been a lot of discussion about it since that question kind of formed in my mind. And so I've got kind of a new understanding of it now, I think and just kind of want to check in that um, I'm on the right lines. But I was sitting with the fact that we're told not to grasp neither positive feelings and emotions, neither negative feelings and emotions. And I was sitting with this idea of grasping and I then looked at myself and how many notes I've taken during the session and seen this as an expression of grasping. Like, I'm taking notes, I'm grasping to information, to knowledge and to insight. And then I wondered, where is there a place for teaching in this? Because teaching is all about grasping. Like, you're grasping constructs you're grasping um, knowledge and understanding so where why is it we're told not to grasp and then the Buddha is a teacher himself and we're here learning and teaching
2: yeah, it's such and a, learning
1: it's and understanding and you're a teacher and it, it, you know we have to grasp in this moment it, it, and teaching it, and, and also just to, just to add to that, like, because I'm kind of like, it's, it's spinning. The other thing, being is that, you know, we, um, you say, like, not to get to a particular place, not to want more than what's in this current moment. Well, all of us are here wanting more. That's why we've been led to this teaching. Like yeah. otherwise, we wouldn't be so, concerned so, about
0: let, turning up. Today. Yes, let me, let me ask you because it, it's such a such a, uh, a profound but intimate question, and it really points to the Dhamma, And it's something that we get caught up in easily. There's there's a, a there's it's, it's such a thing as skillful desire, and and that is the desire, or another word for it, be right effort, as it, as the Buddha teaches it. But it's 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 recognizing that. There's some value in what we're doing, of course, it's the most valuable thing we can do, I think. But it's also utterly ordinary. In other words, the, the, the culmination of all of that we're doing is the establishment of an unwavering calm in our minds and a mind united in our body. That is entirely ordinary. And so I'm not grasping after some type of intellectual attainment, I'm not grasping after some kind of spiritual establishment. I'm, I'm just practicing for calm. In fact, those are the Buddha's words, we practice only for calm. So if you want to get caught up in words, you have to acknowledge the fact that we're human beings and we use words to describe things. So for me to say, we, we practice only for calm, you can say, okay, there's desire, there's wanting in that. You know, Yes, there is, but it's much better than grasping after something that we can't attain. And so that's where the framework of the Eightfold Path clearly defines the guidelines. And if you want to, if you want to, just put the label on it that even in Dhamma practice, I grasp. Yes, we're grasping after, grasping within the framework of the Eightfold Path. I'm grasping for. I'm hoping to develop right view, right intention, right speech, action, livelihood, right effort, right med- right mindfulness, and right meditation. So, however you want to classify that as grasping after a desire. That's fine. Keep it focused within a Dhamma and let go of anything else that you might, re- you might label as grasping outside of that or outside of yourself or outside of a possible human experience. Anything that you do to establish yourself from a fabricated point of view is always grasping. If it's framed by, and again I keep coming back to this, I don't, I don't mean that, that I shouldn't, I do it because it's important, We practice wise restraint at the point of contact, meaning as our life is unfolding. And in that moment, then we are practicing the Dhamma when it's framed by the Eightfold Path. And so in that moment, if it feels like you're grasping after something, but it's framed by the Eightfold Path, it won't lead to distraction. It won't lead to stress and suffering. So it's an important question, but we also have to be careful. Um, we, we, We kind of went through this in the last three or four months, in the local in our local sangha here, um, where people started getting caught up in the words rather than the practice that's underlying the words, and we all need to be careful of that. Your teacher, the Buddha, you know, translations over twenty six hundred years twenty-five years—they're still all based on words. We, we we have to use it. This isn't uh, this isn't a Zen practice or a yoga kara practice and mind-only practice. The communication is important, but again, it's the framework that. It's the framework that legitimizes the the words that we're using. So, does that help, Louise?
1: It kind of does. So, I understand this um, then, that grasping after the ordinary, and the ordinary being any teachings or learnings that take us to a place of peace or humanness, and not trying to attain something that is impossible for us to attain. And then my mind goes to, well, what about university degrees and what about um, professional yes. qualifications? Oh, I,
0: I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's an important point. Um, and I'm not cutting, I don't want to, it's not that I don't want to hear the rest of you. That's what we're talking about. Going after a university degree is fine. It has nothing to do with the Dhamma. But it should be an aspect, when you go to university, you should be go there with a well-concentrated mind that's trained by the Eightfold Path, and then it will be as fulfilling an experience as it could be. But whether okay. you go to university or not has nothing to do with the Dhamma. Your attitude about it does.
1: Right. So it kinda of, that leads me back to I guess the conclusion I came to in my own mind about grasping, and it was that, you know, we will always grasp, like as the human experience to grasp, but we shouldn't be I guess grasping after something where we're where we're um losing our mind. Like a put grasping and losing minds together. Like
0: yeah. Yeah, again, you're getting it. Getting and I I, actually, what I should do is stop right now and tell you, you need to experience this. But I'm not. Uh, You're a human life, whether you're an, an awakened human being or someone who's deeply caught in ignorance of four noble truths from the outside, will for the most part look exactly the same. In other words, most people won't be able to tell whether you're awakened or not, and they probably shouldn't except maybe by the way that you carry yourself. Your own life shouldn't appear too much different from you, except that you'll notice calm. And when, you're, when your mind is calm and at peace, you'll know that you're free of grasping, even in, especially in Dhamma practice. So the, the, the calm of the Dhamma develops not from grasping, and I, and I really would be cautious of using the word, even though grasping can mean, this, mean the same thing as skillful desire or wanting, but it, it's a little bit of a harsh word. We're moving in a direction of calm. We practice only for calm. So when other things come into our moment-by-moment life and they're distracting, we know in that moment we've lost our mind. So it might be that I just heard about a university that I might be able to get into and I kind of drop everything and lose my mind in this moment so I can make all the arrangements and do all that and I've done all that in a mindless way. Rather than recognize I got an opportunity to get in such and such a university, let me use my practice to get there. Let me stay within the framework of the Eightfold Path as I move from now to that next moment where I might be at university. And in that way, the path will be common at peace. Another way to think about this is, is um, I know I left five bucks on. There's a deck right outside my I don't want to show you. There's a deck right outside my door. And I know I left a $5 bill on the corner of the deck. So let me go out and get it. And I open the door, and as soon as that door opens, the wind starts blowing it and I realize I got to run to get it. And I run, and I break my leg. Maybe this is a silly thing, but the the point of the matter is that I wasn't calm. I didn't. It, it, I had too much of me invested in grabbing that five dollar bill before the wind blew it away, or before the wind blew the winds of life blew the next opportunity away. And so I moved too fast from grasping after it, and I hurt myself. The same is true with with within Dhamma practice and outside. We should practice that in our in our lives too. So you're asking a very fundamental question that people ask in different ways. This sounds like annihilation. What happens to me when I let go of all desire? What happens to me when I stop grasping? Will I still be uh, achieving things? Yes, but you'll be doing it in a much more well-concentrated and peaceful way. In fact, I would say, and what I've seen from my own experience, is we become simply much more effective at whatever field we're engaged in. Why? Because we are mindfully present for that instead of always building on a fabrication. So I, I hope that helps. Beyond, that's it. Yeah. The, beyond so this, Louise, I would encourage you. I mean, you're the, I, again, one of the reasons why I, have these, I run these classes this way is because by your questions, I know whether you're getting it or not. And by your questions, you're going in the right direction because that's a, that's a fundamental question that you should be asking. And the basic question is, what the hell happens to me when I awaken? Everything. For the first time in your life, everything. Because you'll be experienced every moment of your life. You won't be. You won't be just caught up with the idea of going to university. You'll make the decision, and when you get there, you'll have the experience.
1: Great,
0: thank you. Yeah, thank you for the question. Thank you all. What a great discussion. Now I promised you we were going to meditate for ten more minutes, but it's gotten late, so um, I have quartered to four of my time. Uh, can I? Can I add something? Yes. Because I forgot. Please
4: just remind me there. it's. I don't know my my own interpretation about the grasping and all this stuff is like to come back to the met- metaphor of the university i mean like it depends uh, how
0: you go to the university yeah
4: so like if you go just because you want to be the best you want to just get the job all this stuff probably is the wrong idea you just put too much effort in this stuff you just go for the sake of goal yeah and, uh, i forgot to ask you that like what about job so when you develop and experience the jhana, but uh, if your job, if your life is not ethical, or
0: moral does affect, I guess. Well, if if your does job it, is immoral in some way, it, it's, hurt, it's it, hurtful it, towards it, 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 yourself or, it, 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 or it, it, others. Uh, no, you, what I, what I mean is like uh, it's what I mean is like
4: uh, it's like to come to your class, right? I come to your if I come to your class as I go to the gym. And then, like, I finish this class, I come back to do my shitty life. Sorry if I use okay. French. It's it doesn't it doesn't work, right? So oh no! If I do, if I keep doing whatever I do, like in a in an extreme way, like I don't know, I I study for the wrong reason or I have a job like that is like soldier, for example. I guess you can be a soldier, but then probably after a while, naturally, you will give it up because maybe it, maybe not. It, 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 it,
0: I, I can imagine a soldier finding a purpose in what they're doing. And I, again, I want to get into the discussion of killing and et cetera. But um, the Dhamma the doesn't exclude... I got I gotta now I mention it. I don't think it would exclude one from being a mindful soldier. Or hopefully it would, accuse, it would exclude somebody from being a murderer, an outright murderer. And then we can get into the, the differences there, but there are. Um, as an individual practitioner you will you will likely you will likely you will become less hurtful towards yourself and so less hurtful towards others. And whether you might have been someone who was egregiously hurtful towards others or someone who just might annoy people occasionally, that really doesn't matter. The degree doesn't matter. It will change. It will change as a consequence of Dharma practice. And it will change quicker as a consequence of Dharma practice if you're not grasping after the change. If you just practice. You know, again, the Eightfold Path, one of the reasons why it works is because, when, but one of the reasons why it's so difficult is we have to do it, and we have to do it in the pure way that it's presented. But other than that, and again, Matteo, this is an aspect of taking refuge. Taking refuge is not, it, it's not something we do on faith. It's, we're, not, we're not joining a religion here. We understand that a human, a human being developed this. He awakened this human being left his teachings, the Dhamma. He left it for us. And we have a well focused and well informed Sangha. Those are the three jewels. We have everything we need within those three jewels to develop awakening. That's what we, that's what we practice. We we the, the encouragement to the restraint that we're practicing is because of that. Because we have this, we have this, this true refuge in something that's going to develop what we hope it will not what we will what we know it will because of that we're not taking anything on faith although that being said most people have to have some experience of this actually working before they're they'll let go of faith and and then then this is a practice of pure conviction which is two different things it's okay to start start out on faith you know some friends you you, you heard this guy online or something that's okay but at some point rather quickly You'll, you'll go from faith to conviction. I know this will work for me. Now I'm going to practice wholeheartedly. And so these, these the things in life that you have to do, you do. The things in life that are um, merely icing on the cake, you'll recognize as such and let it go. But you'll do it. It's not a, it's not a, a moral imperative. There's no, there's no morality that way in the Dhamma. It's all very practical. And of course, the underlying morality is that within we truly remain harmless to ourselves and others which is what everybody wants, isn't it? I mean, truly, we just don't know how to do it. So, uh, any other questions? Before you,
2: uh, before you jump in with the meditation, John, can I just share something that the sure. Dharma defines as grasping? Sure. It would, I think would answer Luis's question. Uh, in grasping, it, the specific meaning would be, in this case, talking about the university or whatever, is it becomes grasping when you think this is me, This is mine. This is who I am. So if you want to learn to understand um, medicinal herbs or, or, or foods that are healthy so you can share it with somebody and make them healthy, that's perfectly fine. But it only becomes grasping when you then take the position, I am now a professor, I am a teacher, and you're increasing the sense of I, self, or the ego, Or I am the possessor of this. And the same thing with grasping of the aggregates. The aggregates are no problem. But when you take it, I am the one that sees, I am the one that hears, I am the one that feels, then you're creating a self. And then it's grasping, which then becomes becoming, which then becomes suffering, birth and then suffering. So that's from a Dharma perspective.
0: Thank you. What Cliff just just said in the word in becoming, what we're becoming is either further ignorant or becoming awakened. And again, it goes right back to how the, what the Buddha says about we because of a misunderstanding of self, we become anything other than self. And using what Cliff said, because I misunderstand what I am, meaning I'm going to school to become a professor, I now have to be the professor. It's it's just a, it's a different it's a difference between right view and wrong view, contained in the same person. Yeah. Thank you, Cliff. Um, all right, we're gonna we'll meditate for ten minutes. Uh, keep in mind what we just learned about the four levels of jhana. There's nothing magical, nothing mystical about them, and there's nothing grasping after. Simply recognize them as they develop. Um, and I'll we'll finish the class as soon as we're done with the meditation. Uh, uh, you know, I'll have a few words after that. And if you have any questions that come up, we'll have another brief discussion. But I got a meeting coming up. I got some time. All right. So now is the time to meditate, with eyes closed and breathing through your nose. Now is the time to set mindfulness on the breath in the body and do jhana. Find your relaxed meditation posture, holding your back straight but not stiff. Your ears aligned with your shoulders, your nose aligned with your navel. And holding yourself softly, gently, lovingly. Allow yourselves to settle into your rooms, settle onto your seats, settle into your bodies, and settle into your minds. Notice the sensation of breathing in your body. Become mindful of your inhalation and your exhalation, your in-breath and your out-breath. While remaining mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath, notice that feelings arise and thoughts are flowing. We are sensitive and conscious beings. Feelings arise and thoughts flow. The purpose of meditation is to increase concentration and not be distracted by the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts. Notice the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body. When you find that you're caught up in your thinking, simply acknowledge the distraction and return mindfulness to your breathing. Relaxing your thoughts, remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body. And we'll continue to meditate for 10 minutes with a call back at five minutes. E Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body. And we'll continue to meditate for five more minutes. Take a moment to notice the quality of your mind. Be at peace with your mind. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. How was that? Did anybody notice the different levels of jhana? A little bit. Moments, fleeting, yeah. fleeting moments. Just be mindful of it. Don't be grasping after them, and you'll you'll notice them more and more. And will the uh, the levels of jhana are a recurring theme, so we'll be coming back to them. So, uh, and that that's another thing. There's a lot in in some of these suttas including this one. Uh, there will be no test. There never will be a test as far as they, did you memorize it. But continued practice will integrate all these different. Uh, themes and concepts of the Dhamma. Uh, it, it's again, it comes back to ahipasiko. You know, you have to put the practice in. But thank you for joining today, and uh, you know, we'll see you at least next Thursday, and we have a class Saturday morning and Tuesday evening, my time too. So, peace, Great. everyone.
3: And, um, John Pance will with
0: Mateo. Mm. Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.